Hey, it's Guy here. So have you ever thought about why we believe in science or why we seem to be searching for deeper meanings or even the fact that one question leads to another? Well, even though science often gives us the answers, the process of inquiry doesn't, of course, end there. Today's show is called The Spirit of Inquiry, and it originally aired in February of 2017. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that. Delivered at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about questions. So to get us started, here's a question. What if everyone jumped at once? That is, what if everyone on the planet jumped in the same place on Earth? What would happen? Could we, like, shake the planet? Well, it's the kind of question you can't really answer without asking more questions. But uh, first, Michael, a uh, quick question for you, uh, which is, can you uh, can you introduce yourself? My name is Michael Stevens. I'm the creator of the Vsauce Educational Network on YouTube and the host of one of its channels, Vsauce One. Okay, where were we? If all of us were to get together in one location and all jump 30 centimeters into the air at the exact same time, Earth would only move away from us about one hundredth of the width of a single hydrogen atom. This is Michael Stevens answering this very question on his YouTube channel, where he basically devotes all his time and energy to asking all kinds of questions. What about the five-second rule? Hmm. Is that true? The five-second rule may be true if we rename it the one femtosecond rule. Um, I've investigated that one. Sometimes the questions are really funny, but actually very profound. Like, why do we call it our bottom if it's in the middle of our body? Good question. What's going on here is probably a combination of torso-centric thinking and euphemism. Bottom is a nice word for a sometimes dirty part. And Now, the thing about Michael Stevens is he's not a scientist. He's kind of a professional inquirer and really good at explaining complicated ideas. I am a rabbit hole chasing kind of person. Yeah. I was never a genius student, and I am even further from a genius today. The more I've learned and read, the more I realize that I don't know what I'm talking about. But um, at, at the most, I can just say that I'm curious and that I love sharing things that, that fascinate me and hopefully are contagiously fascinating. And each time he starts to go down that rabbit hole, Michael unlocks another question and then another and another. Now, think about this for a moment. Not that long ago, the ability to ask and then answer big questions wasn't something everyone could do, right? You needed access to lots and lots of information. You needed the training to find what you were looking for. But in a very short span of time, most humans on the planet have witnessed this giant technological leap that spread that access everywhere. I mean, just think about your smartphone. In your hand, you can connect to an infinite reservoir of knowledge. And it means that anyone with a sense of curiosity can tap into it, which is why Michael Stevens can do what he does, as he demonstrated on the TED stage. Here's a question. This speech is live. I'm actually here in front of you guys. We're all here together. But this speech is being recorded, and it will become a video that people can access all over the world on computers, mobile devices, televisions. I weigh about 190 pounds. How much will the video weigh? Well, when you stream a video onto your computer, that information is temporarily stored using electrons. And the number of electrons on your device won't actually increase or decrease, but it takes energy to store them in one place. And we know, thanks to our friend Albert Einstein, that energy and mass are related. Assuming a typical bitrate, we can figure that a minute of YouTube video is going to need to involve about 10 million electrons on your device. 
plugging all of those electrons and the energy it takes to hold them in the correct place for you to see the video into that formula, we can figure out that one minute of YouTube video increases the mass of your computer by about 10 to the negative 19th grams. That's, you could call that nothing and you wouldn't really get in trouble because the best scales we've ever invented that we could try to use to actually detect that change are only accurate to 10 to the negative ninth grams. So we can't measure it, but we can, like we just did, calculate it. And that's really cool because with numbers that small, I can fit thousands of books on my own little personal electronic reader. I can stream hours and hours and days and days of YouTube video without my computer ever getting measurably heavier. And as information becomes that light, it becomes a lot more democratic, meaning that more teachers and presenters and creators and viewers than ever before can be involved. I mean, that, that's the thing about technology, right? Like, it's, it's empowered anyone who wants to, to, to tap into their natural human curiosity. Yeah, and I think that, you know, Many animals are curious, clearly. Yeah, right. um, it, it has served humans very well. Um, one of my favorite observations from human history is that Neanderthals traveled the land, but they would stop if they reached a coast. They would stop if they reached difficult terrain like mountains. But Homo sapiens didn't. In the face of what would seem like a totally stupid challenge... Homo sapiens were like, yeah, but maybe there is something cool over there. Homo sapiens f discovered Hawaii <laughs> with, with simple boats. Humans just sailed out into the Pacific. We're just like, let's go out and see what we found. Yeah. Neanderthals didn't do that. And guess what? They're not here anymore. So, so basically, we got to this point as a species because we asked questions? No doubt. Today on the show, the spirit of inquiry. Ideas about what happens when questions lead to more questions and then to unexpected answers, and why the question is often more important than the answer. Humans aren't just about asking questions. They're about finding answers. And there's always a push and pull between should we keep asking or is it better left with what we know today? But it seems like the answer is obvious, that we have to keep asking. Yeah, I think that it doesn't even matter what answer we come up with today because we will keep asking. We are just going to gain more and more and more knowledge, a broader width of that circle of knowledge, but at all times, an even greater circumference beyond, that is, the unknown. You can check out Michael Stevens' TED Talk at TED.com. And all of his videos on the Vsauce Educational Network on YouTube. That's the letter V, sauce. Hey, Naomi, can you uh, just quickly introduce yourself? I'm Naomi Oreskes. I'm the professor of the history of science and affiliated professor of earth and planetary sciences at Harvard University. So it's, it's fair to say that you study pretty big questions, I guess. Right. The history of science is the history of the development of knowledge about the natural world. I study scientists. I study the processes by which they collect evidence. By Which, which they means Naomi gets to ask the meta-questions about how we know what we know. We say science is evidence-based, but what's evidence? How do we judge whether some evidence is good or bad? And lately... Naomi's been trying to answer one very big question, which is, why should we trust in science at all? Scientists tell us that the world is warming. Scientists tell us that vaccines are safe. But how do we know if they're right? Why should we believe the science? Here's Naomi Oreskes on the TED stage. The fact is, many of us actually don't believe the science. Public opinion polls consistently show that significant proportions of the American people don't believe the climate is warming due to human activities, don't think that there's evolution by natural selection, and aren't persuaded by the safety of vaccines. So why should we believe the science? Well, scientists don't like talking about science as a matter of belief. In fact, they would contract science with faith, and they would say belief is the domain of faith. Now, 
The fact is, though, for most of us, most scientific claims are a leap of faith. We can't really judge scientific claims for ourselves in most cases. And indeed, this is actually true for most scientists as well, outside of their own specialties. So if you think about it, a geologist can't tell you whether a vaccine is safe. Most chemists are not experts in evolutionary theory. A physicist cannot tell you whether or not tobacco causes cancer. So if even scientists themselves have to make a leap of faith outside their own fields, then why do they accept the claims of other scientists? And should we believe those claims? So what I'd like to argue is, yes, we should, but not for the reason that most of us think. Most of us were taught in school that the reason we should believe in science is because of the scientific method. We were taught that scientists follow a method and that this method guarantees the truth of their claims. So the scientific method, right? You have a hypothesis, you do some experiments, you make some observations, and... If the observations work or the experiment works, you say your hypothesis is confirmed and you go on and do the next thing. But, Naomi says, the scientific method is just a starting point. The scientist can't just say, okay, I confirm my hypothesis, now I go do the next thing. That by itself is not sufficient. So if that's not sufficient, what is? How do scientists decide what's right and wrong? Consensus. Consensus. And this is really, I think, the most important part of science that many people don't understand and that isn't in the high school textbook. Consensus is the key. And building consensus takes a long time. Somebody comes up with a scientific conclusion. Those conclusions are then vetted by other scientists. If they check out, they're published. And then even more scientists review those results and ask their own questions. If it turns out that when they try to use my data or my idea and it doesn't work, then they will publish a paper saying, well, well, hold on a second. So my claim could end up being discredited. Sometimes critics of science will point to papers in the journal that, that were subsequently disproved and say, oh, see, look, you can't trust science because that paper, you know, that got published. But then we realized that that was nonsense. Well, that's not evidence of what's wrong with science. That's actually evidence of what's right with science because the, the claim got disproved and then we know, okay, you know, Naomi's an honest person. It was a good idea. We tried it, but it didn't work. So we now reject it and we move on. So, so how do you know when you've reached consensus? So imagine now I've published my paper. My colleagues have picked up on my idea and my data and they've used and they've worked with it. And they say, yes, our data are consistent with this. And now other people do the same and eventually, we all conclude that my claim was right. And that's what scientific knowledge is. It's that moment when we all say, yeah, this appears to be right. And then we stop discussing it. The whole reason why science can progress is because there are points at which we all agree the data is secure, the data is sufficient, it's settled, we have a consensus, and we move on to the next question. In just a moment, when we come back, Naomi Oreskes on why scientists revisit old questions, even ones you thought were settled. Today on the show, ideas about the spirit of inquiry. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who helped make this podcast possible. First, to Smartwater. Smartwater aims to go beyond what others are doing. Taking inspiration from the clouds themselves, Smartwater one-ups them by adding electrolytes for a clean, crisp taste. Smartwater, vapor distilled for purity, electrolytes for taste. Thanks also to DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean, the easiest cloud platform to deploy, manage, and scale applications of any size. Over 150,000 businesses rely on DigitalOcean to simplify their cloud infrastructure and deliver industry-leading price performance. Build your next app on the all-in-one cloud platform developers love. Get started with a free $100 credit when you sign up for DigitalOcean at do.co slash radio hour. Hey. 
Hey, Asma. Hey, Scott. Another crazy week. We've got North Korea. Yep, we got Russia. Midterms. And of course, President Trump. And what happens whenever there is crazy news that erupts? We pop into the studio and break it down to make sense. So if you see a headline... We've discussed it. It's the NPR Politics Podcast. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, the spirit of inquiry, how questions lead to new ones and unexpected answers. And we were just hearing from science historian Naomi Oreskes. In recent years, she's been talking a lot about science and trust. And she argues it's the very process of inquiry that should make us trust science. Here's Naomi on the TED stage. Scientists judge by judging evidence, and they have to subject it to scrutiny. And this led the sociologist Robert Merton to focus on this question of how scientists scrutinize data and evidence. And he said they do it in a way he called organized skepticism. And by that he meant it's organized because they do it collectively, they do it as a group, and skepticism because they do it from a position of distrust. That is to say, the burden of proof is on the person with a novel claim. And in this sense, science is intrinsically conservative. It's quite hard to persuade the scientific community to say, yes, we know something, this is true. What we find is that actually really major changes in scientific thinking are relatively rare in the history of science. At the end of the day, what science is, what scientific knowledge is, is the consensus of the scientific experts who, through this process of organized scrutiny, collective scrutiny, have judged the evidence and come to a conclusion about it, either yay or nay. So we can think of scientific knowledge as a consensus of experts. We can also think of science as being a kind of a jury, except it's a very special kind of jury. It's not a jury of your peers, it's a jury of geeks. (laughs) It's a jury of men and women with PhDs. But this leads us to one final problem. If science is what scientists say it is, then isn't that just an appeal to authority? And weren't we all taught in school that the appeal to authority is a logical fallacy? Well, here's the paradox of modern science, that actually scientist is the appeal to authority. But it's not the authority of the individual, no matter how smart that individual is, like Plato or Socrates, or Einstein. It's the authority of the collective community. You can think of it as a kind of wisdom of the crowd, but a very special kind of crowd. The collective knowledge, the collective work of all of the scientists who have worked on a particular problem. Is there an example of of when the consensus changed, like something that we pretty much believed was true, like like an article of faith that we Like, we had to later rethink? Well, nothing in science is an article of faith because we're always aware of the possibility that there could be new information that could make us rethink a question and reopen an old issue. Um, And that's what scientific discovery is all about. Hmm. So take gravity. I mean, it'd be a pretty stupid thing to jump out of a window thinking, well, maybe the idea of gravity will be revisited in the future. (laughs) That would be a pretty dumb move, right? Uh, uh, Unless you Um, land into a pool filled with marshmallow fluff. Right, exactly. You can come up with some extremely implausible scenarios for how our understanding might somehow not apply in this particular case. But here's the interesting thing about gravity. Our understanding of gravity today is different than our understanding of what it was in the late 19th century. So in the late 19th century, we had a vision of gravity that we had been passed down since Newton. We thought of gravity as a force that prevailed in the presence of a massive body. And the mathematics of that was correct. People could use Newton's laws of motions to predict uh, how an object would fall through space. But then in the early 20th century, Albert Einstein comes along and he says, well, there's a different way to look at this thing that we call gravity. And I think that gravity is actually the bending of space-time in the presence of massive Mm. bodies. So now we have a different conceptual understanding of gravity, and it's radically different. There's no downplaying the fact that this is a radically different vision of the world and how it operates. But if you jump out of a window from a 10-story building, you will still get killed. 
<laughs> because that the the outcomes, the empirical outcomes, actually for most purposes are the same. There's a certain kind of mathematical structure to the universe that both Newton and Einstein correctly perceived. They gave different accounts of it, but if you had to calculate what the impact would be of jumping out of a window, in terms of whether you would live or die. It doesn't actually change, even though the conceptualization of the universe is very different. But I mean, if, as you say, you know, nothing in science is an article of faith. I mean, I'm assuming that most scientists do what they do. They they ask big questions with the goal of seeking out a truth. Well, we are seeking the truth. I think any scientist will tell you that that's our goal. But we also know that truth is a kind of receding ideal. We can never be sure we're there because we have no independent means of knowing that we're there. Like we don't know when we've arrived is the problem. So yes, we seek the truth, but we're also mindful. And I would say a good scientist is humble that we understand that it is a receding goal. The purposes of all these processes of interrogation is to transform claims from an individual subjective claim that I, Naomi thinks is true to a claim that has been sufficiently examined and scrutinized by enough different people that we can say this isn't just Naomi's opinion anymore. This is a claim that we all agree is supported by the evidence and appears to be true. Okay, so it brings me to my final point. Most of us trust our cars. So why is that? Why do cars work so well? It's not because of the genius of Henry Ford or Carl Benz or even Elon Musk. It's because the modern automobile is the product of more than a hundred of years of work by hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of people. The modern automobile is the product of the collected work and wisdom and experience of every man and woman who has ever worked on a car. And the reliability of the technology is the result of that accumulated effort. We benefit not just from the genius of Benz and Ford and Musk, but from the collective intelligence and hard work of all of the people who have worked on the modern car. And the same is true of science, only science is even older. Our basis for trust in science is actually the same as our basis in trust in technology, and the same as the, our basis for trust in anything, namely experience. But it shouldn't be blind trust any more than we would have blind trust in anything. Our trust in science, like science itself, should be based on evidence. And that means that scientists have to become better communicators. They have to explain to us not just what they know, but how they know it. And it means that we have to become better listeners. Thank you very much. Naomi Reskis is a professor at Harvard. Her work focuses on the history of science. You can see her entire talk at TED.com. On the show today, the spirit of inquiry, why the question is often more important than the answer, and what happens when one question leads to another. That's how every medical interview um, that I have with a patient begins. Questions that they have, questions I have for them, trying to put the pieces together and understand what's happening. This is Kevin Jones. He's a surgeon who specializes in a rare group of cancers called sarcomas. And he says doctors, no matter how many questions they ask, definitely don't have all the answers. I think there's been a fairly paternalistic view of medicine where we just kind of, we take care of patients. You know, we we manage all this uncertainty and things for them. Hmm. And I, I just, I react unhappily to that because I think that there is an element of, of certainly not malintended, but there's an element of dishonesty when we presume to know more than we know. I mean, somebody in your position is, uh, is sought out to give answers, right? Like patients come to you and they say, Dr. Jones, um, you know, am I going to die? And, and you don't always have the answers. Absolutely. No, I mean, we, we especially when it comes down to predictions, I mean, just like the weathermen, <laughs> we're, we're terrible at making predictions. And yet we have to. Here's Kevin Jones on the TED stage. Medicine is science. Medicine is knowledge in process. 
Sometimes in the media, and even more rarely, but sometimes even scientists will say that something or other has been scientifically proven. But I hope that you understand that science never proves anything definitively forever. Now, I am a surgeon, and I would tell you that every one of my patients is an outlier, is an exception. People talk about thinking outside the box, but we don't even have a box in sarcoma. What we do have as we take a bath in the uncertainty and unknowns and exceptions and outliers that surround us in sarcoma is easy access to what I think are those two most important values for any science, humility and curiosity. Because if I am humble and curious, when a patient asks me a question and I don't know the answer, I'll ask a colleague who may have a similar, albeit distinct, patient with sarcoma. We'll even establish international collaborations. Those patients will start to talk to each other through chat rooms and support groups. It's through this kind of humbly curious communication that we begin to try and learn new things. Hopefully, science remains curious enough to look for and humble enough to recognize when we have found the next outlier, the next exception, which teaches us what we don't actually know. A colleague of mine removed a tumor from a patient's limb. He was concerned about this tumor, but his conversations with the patient were exactly what a patient might want. He said, I got it all and you're good to go. She and her husband were thrilled. They went out, celebrated, fancy dinner, opened a bottle of champagne. The only problem was, a few weeks later, she started to notice another nodule in the same area. Turned out, he hadn't gotten it all and she wasn't good to go. My colleague came to me and said, Kevin, would you mind looking after this patient for me? I said, why? You know the right thing to do as well as I do. You haven't done anything wrong. He said, please, just look after this patient for me. He was embarrassed, not by what he had done, but by the conversation that he had had, by the overconfidence. So I performed a much more invasive surgery and had a very different conversation with the patient afterwards. I said, most likely, I've gotten it all, and you're most likely good to go. But this is the experiment that we're doing. We're going to work together to find out if this surgery will work to get rid of your cancer. So basically, you, you just told her, like, she would always need to be a little uncertain? Yeah. We never know completely. We have to be careful about coming across as, as overly confident. I mean, patients respond very well to physicians who are brimming with confidence. But if it doesn't work, you know, they're taking whatever pill and, um, and whatever it was is not getting better, they're kind of banging their head against the wall and they say either I did something wrong or my physician's an idiot or, <laughs> you know, they, they, they start to have incredible distrust of the process. So, so I, mean, I mean, you're saying, like, acknowledge, you know, the room for error, right? For, for uncertainty with, with patients. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, you could either have a physician who's like a used car salesman or something who says, don't pay attention to all these holes that are in our, our abilities and in our, our knowledge. Or you can have a physician that basically functions as a teacher, as, as a mentor, um, in the process of going through this experience and, and, and sort of standing next to the patient and pointing out the holes. <laughs> this, this is what we don't know. This is what we're yet to find out. And I still think that we can acknowledge, look, I don't have a black and white answer for you because it doesn't exist. And anybody who gives you a black and white answer is either bluffing or is making up some part of it. Almost 20 billion times each year, a person walks into a doctor's office and that person becomes a patient. You or someone you love will be that patient sometime very soon. How will you talk to your doctors? What will they tell you? I have conversations with these patients with rare and deadly diseases. These conversations are terribly fraught. They're fraught with horrible phrases like, I have bad news, or there's nothing more we can do. 
Sometimes these conversations turn on a single word, terminal. Silence can also be rather uncomfortable. Where the blanks are in medicine can be just as important as the words that we use in these conversations. What are the unknowns? What are the experiments that are being done? I'll never forget the night that I walked into one of my patients' rooms. He was a boy I had diagnosed with a bone cancer a few days before. It was almost midnight when I got to his room. He was asleep, but I found his mother reading by flashlight next to his bed. Turned out that what she had been reading was the protocol that the chemotherapy doctors had given her that day. She had memorized it. She said, "Dr. Jones, you told me that we don't always win with this type of cancer." But I've been studying this protocol, and I think I can do it. I think I can comply with these very difficult treatments. I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to move in with my parents. I'm going to keep my baby safe. I didn't tell her. I didn't stop to correct her thinking. She was trusting in a protocol that, even if complied with, wouldn't necessarily save her son. I didn't fill in that blank. But a year and a half later, her boy nonetheless died of his cancer. Should I have told her? One of the things you said、um, in another part of your talk, Kevin, is that you see every patient as as like a new experiment, right? And and every time it's it's a gamble if if it's going to work or not. Yeah, we're going to find out with someone's. With someone's life and and health, and so it it, it counts. It, it it matters. You know, it's it's interesting because I I think we all like stories, right? We like a beginning and a middle and an end, and so scientists are wanting to tell a story, and the challenge is that sometimes the story can carry us away, and so if we don't have humility. Then we will stop honestly inquiring about things, and so that that that's where I I really think that the the humility is critical, because we have to sort of hold ourselves back. We have to rein ourselves in when we are so excited about a story that that we can start to see things where they aren't really there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're we're wired to ask questions, right? Like as as Michael Stevens said earlier. You know, like we sort of emerged from the the savannas of East Africa, out into the wider world because we were curious. Yeah, we asked questions. Yeah, totally agree. And and what's so critical, I think, is asking the correct questions. And really, we cannot really say with science what is going to happen. We can guess, and then we can test it and see what happens.、Hmm. So I I really think that the key is asking the correct questions. What can I do? What can I choose? And can I test that moving forward? I love that about scientific inquiry, is that it is intrinsically forward-looking. Dr. Kevin Jones, you can see his full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about the spirit of inquiry. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour. From NPR. Hey everyone! Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Microsoft Surface. If you want to be productive but are out and about all day, meet the all-new Surface Go, the smallest Microsoft Surface ever. It's just over a pound and has a 10-inch touchscreen. This new Surface Go has the performance of a laptop, but also the portability of a tablet. The Surface Go easily adapts to all your needs, from running Office to helping you take care of everyday tasks. So, what are you waiting for? It's time to go. Thanks also to Capital One. Know when your credit card purchases go through with instant purchase notifications on the Capital One app, so you don't miss a purchase, large or small. Technology this convenient could make history. What's in your wallet? Offered by Capital One Bank USA, NA Copyright 
How do rising interest rates affect the price of your home? And can one infinity be bigger than another? The Indicator, a daily podcast where we tackle the big economic questions. Really big. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about the spirit of inquiry. And when it comes to the unknown on any subject, we're all kind of trained to seek out experts. The model of the expert, which has dominated our intellectual life for a century now, is not a model of inquiry at all. This is Liz Coleman. It's a model of command. It's a model of knowing more than the other person. It's a model in which what the expert does is what matters, and the job of the, quote, student is to absorb. Liz was president of Bennington College in Vermont for more than 25 years. And she argues that we've lost this desire to be interested in many different things because we live in an age where the expert is king. It's not easy when a system is built on that version of accomplishment, when narrowing your sights is treated as a virtue. We all use the language of experts and of separating things. Here's how Liz Coleman put it on the TED stage. The progression of today's college student is to jettison every interest except one. And within that one, to continually narrow the focus, learning more and more about less and less. This, despite the evidence all around us of the interconnectedness of things. As one moves up the ladder, values other than technical competence are viewed with increasing suspicion. Questions such as, what kind of a world are we making? What kind of a world should we be making? What kind of a world can we be making? Are treated with more and more skepticism and move off the table. Liz Coleman says that by narrowing the focus of our questions, we lose out on how they connect to the big ones. And without people thinking about the big questions, there will be consequences. Take, for example, climate change. So we have this absurd idea that the scientists should figure out what's wrong with the situation vis-a-vis the environment, and then they hand it over to the politicians who are supposed to figure out what to do. Until the thinking and the action become inseparable, we're not going to get where we need to get. When you think about The people who discover things, right? The people who we depend on for information. And and most of those people are uh, are academics or researchers. But then you think about the people who, uh, I'm trying to think of the best way to put it, like 360 degree people who could really communicate a variety of ideas, Mm -hmm. Renaissance people Mm -hmm. in in sort of uh, the modern age. I can think of like Richard Feynman or Stephen Mm -hmm. Jay Gould or Neil deGrasse Tyson or Vera Rubin. Mm -hmm. Right. Like right. they stand out because they felt like they could talk about literature and science and the cosmos and philosophy all at the same time. Yeah, it's very interesting. And one of the most intriguing things about that, almost all of them are scientists. Hmm. And it's fascinating that we think of the sciences as the most highly technical of any of the disciplines. So, for example, we think about literature history, psychology is more available. But in fact, the great leaders who have really made some of their wisdom and their insight available to the largest number of people are almost all scientists. Einstein spent a lot of time talking about his ideas and indeed other ideas. That's itself very interesting. What's even more interesting and disconcerting is is what's happened in literature is the opposite. So that in literature, the criticism has become less and less something that has possible resonance for people across the divides. The importance of coming to grips with values like justice, equity, truth, becomes increasingly evident as students discover that interests alone cannot tell them what they need to know when the issue is rethinking education, our approach to health, or strategies for achieving an economics of equity. The value of the past also comes alive. 
You are not the first to try to figure this out, just as you are unlikely to be the last. Even more valuable, history provides a laboratory in which we see played out the actual, as well as the intended, consequences of ideas. In the language of my students, deep thought matters when you're contemplating what to do about things that matter. Liz, when you gave this talk eight years ago, it was cautionary. I mean, you were warning. It was a warning. And it was... Um, yeah. And some people in the audience might have thought you were being alarmist. And I wonder now, you know, um, eight years on, when you look at sort of the future and where we're headed as a country, as a culture, um, are you worried? Of course. Because the risks are huge. And when the risks are huge, you worry. At the same time... I do think that there is a different sense of urgency. What is important is that there is an awakening in this country to the dimensions both of what's at stake and how much it is in danger. Uh, one of the most powerful things to me about the act of thinking and, and about democracy actually is the extent to which being able to engage the challenge of that with other people uh, is an extraordinary experience. It's what's called deliberation. It began the United States. It's a very powerful part of our history and very relevant today because of its absence. And hopefully, one of the things that the evident urgencies of our time may generate is a return to that art of people collecting and thinking out loud together. Liz Coleman, former president of Bennington College in Vermont. You can hear her full talk at TED.com. Today on the show, the spirit of inquiry. Why the question is usually more important than the answer. Is there a sense, you know, among scientists that, I don't know, that like a lot of the big things have, have already kind of been discovered? No. <laughs> no. It's an interesting thing. Uh, there are some of us scientists who believe that what we don't know is vastly more than what we do know. Just look at dark energy and dark matter. We don't know what 95% of the universe is. This is Eric Hazeltine. PhD, ADHD. And the ADHD part is only a half joke because while Eric does have a PhD, it's in neuroscience, over his career, he's found it pretty hard to focus on just one thing. Well, I've um, always moved around when I thought the world was about to change. He's built flight simulators for the aerospace industry. He worked at Disney on digital animation. And after September 11th, he was in charge of research and development for the National Security Agency. What do you do now? I'm a futurist and consultant on innovation. So basically what that means is that Eric studies how science could ask really big questions to achieve really big breakthroughs. And he says there are lessons about how we can do that from the past. The past, I think, is a tremendous guide to the future because it shows you one of the most important antecedents of a big scientific breakthrough, which is a fringe idea. Here's Eric Heseltine on the TED stage. 1847, Vienna, Austria. Ignaz Semmelweis was a somber, compulsively thorough doctor who ran two maternity clinics. They were identical except for one thing. Women were dying of high fever soon after giving birth three times more often at one of the clinics than at the other. Trying to figure out what the difference was that caused this, Semmelweis looked at everything he could. Sanitation? No. Medical procedures? No. Airflow? No. The puzzle went unsolved until he happened to autopsy a doctor who died of an infected scalpel cut. The doctor's symptoms were identical to those of the mothers who were dying. How is that possible? How could a male doctor get the same thing as new mothers? Semmelweis reconstructed everything the doctor had done right before he got sick, and he discovered that he'd been autopsying a corpse. Had something gotten in his wound that killed him? It turned out 
that at the hospital with a high death rate, but not the others, doctors delivered babies immediately after autopsying corpses in the morgue. Aha! Corpses were contaminating the doctor's hand and killing his mothers. Dr. Ignat Semmelweis had discovered infectious disease. But the doctors of the day thought he was crazy because they knew and had for hundreds of years that odorous vapors called miasmas cause disease, not these hypothetical particles that you couldn't see. It took 20 years for Frenchman Louis Pasteur to prove that Semmelweis was right. Pasteur was an agricultural chemist who tried to figure out why milk and beer spoiled so often. He found the bacteria were the culprits. He also demolished fond ideas that people kept close to their heart. Miasmas didn't kill people, bacteria killed people. Now, a radical idea like that, Eric says, is one of the four things that can trigger a massive scientific breakthrough. Yeah, so the first thing is a uh, radical idea. Another one is an invention of a new instrument. Hmm. So you had the telescope and the microscope and they opened up worlds that we didn't even know existed. Um, the third one is the collision of radically diverse disciplines. In the case of DNA, it was X-ray crystallography, Mendelian genetics, biochemistry, molecular biology, all of those things kind of fused together into an exotic cocktail that led to the discovery of the structure of DNA. And the fourth one is due to Freud. Freud said that humans advance when they remove themselves from having to be the center of everything. Hmm. So you have Copernicus who said, you know, we aren't the center of the universe. You had Darwin who said, we're not special. And now you have people who are looking at many worlds theories of quantum mechanics and saying, you know, our universe isn't even unique. And I think that's really important because we, we do have a very anthropocentric view of the universe. Yeah. And it limits us. So if that's the case, I mean, how, how are we going to find, you know, the next Einstein or Darwin or Watson or Crick? You know, how are we going to know that we found them if we do? Well, Really, uh, I would look at people who have a track record of orthodox science, but who are exploring completely bizarre, strange things that would turn our understanding of nature on its head. Uh, you know, I think that the biggest quandary in physics is the contradiction between quantum mechanics and general relativity. But Julian Barber is this physicist who said, well, you know what, it's just because we have this inconvenient idea called time. And time doesn't really exist. There's just an eternal now where it's just like the movie frames are all there. We're just moving from one frame to another. And if we remove time, then there is no contradiction between those two theories. So that's an example. You know, he could be one of those people. I'm not talking about science that takes baby steps. I'm talking about science that takes enormous leaps. I'm talking Darwin. I'm talking Einstein. I'm talking revolutionary science that turns the world on its head. I gotta believe that there are Darwins and Einsteins out there. Consider this. There are seven times more people alive today than during Darwin's time. When you consider that the proportion of scientists in the population has skyrocketed, there are now seven million scientists. I gotta believe, and I do believe, that there's one of them out there who is working right now in obscurity to rock our lives. And I don't know about you, but I can't wait to be rocked. So I'm just, I'm just curious though, I mean, do you think that there are things out there that we will just never be able to understand? Well, I think, there's this hubris that uh, we think the complexity of the universe is on a scale that we can comprehend. I wonder. Right. Um, I remember a conversation I had with Marvin Minsky, and they said, Marvin, do you think humans either individually or collectively are smart enough to understand nature in its totality? And immediately he said, no. I have a cat that's the smartest cat I've ever had or seen, and I'll never teach it French. Hmm. It's a really novel way of looking at it, to have humility. I think that's really important in a scientist, to have humility. 
to respect that this thing could be way bigger than we can really understand and not to try to say, finally, this is the truth. I mean, it's kind of exciting because it means that there's just the infinite possibility of asking questions. I mean, it's perpetual. It never ends. Right. I don't think uh, there will ever be an end to science. So if you if you had to place a wager, right, like what are the big questions we're going to answer in the future? Well, you know, I often ask people, imagine a color that you've never seen before. And you can't do it because our brains construct things from building blocks of what we've experienced. If you've never experienced it, you can't imagine it. You know, there are two futures. There's the boring future, which is things that are just an evolution of what's already here, changed a little bit. And then there's the interesting future, which is utterly unlike anything you could imagine. I think the interesting future is a color that you've never seen before. And so if you look inside yourself and say, what do I expect to happen? The interesting future is the opposite of that. It's what you don't expect. Isaac Asimov said that science doesn't proceed with eureka. It proceeds with, that's funny. And so I think by definition, the things that are going to make the biggest difference in the future are things that sound weird. Yeah. That's why I think Einstein, what he meant when he said imagination is more important than knowledge. Knowledge is an anchor that anchors you to the past. Imagination, that's where the future lies. Eric Hazeltine, he's been a neuroscientist, an industrial psychologist, an entertainment executive, intelligence officer, and probably the most interesting person at every dinner party he attends. You can see his entire talk at TED.com. Hey, thanks for listening to our show on the spirit of inquiry this week. If you want to find out more about who was on it, go to ted.npr.org. To see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Neva Grant, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Casey Herman, Rachel Faulkner, and our newest member, Janae West. Welcome, Janae. We had help this week from Camilo Garcon and Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Thomas Liu. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Kelly Stetzel, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. If you want to let us know what you think about the show, you can write us at TEDRadioHour at NPR.org. You can also follow us on Twitter. It's at TEDRadioHour. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. Find it at NPR.org slash podcasts or on iTunes. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.